The reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 9, starting at verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, a handsome, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost, and Kish said to the son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalem, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zaph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there's a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone, and we have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go see the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out, of the, coming out to draw water and they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people won't begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and, to, and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel, and is not my clan for the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such things to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Saul said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, 
Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place of the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose at daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us, and the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb, at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you'll go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, and another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you'll go to Gilbeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they'll be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come down powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came down powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? 
And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the peoples, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's uh, lovely to have you with us as we work our way through uh, 1 Samuel, this extraordinary story. Do keep uh, those pages in the Bible open, and let's pray as we turn to God's word together. Father God, we thank you for this word, and we pray that in, uh, in the mess of it, we might find real encouragement that you're a God for people like me. Amen. Now, in the original Star Wars movies, it's pretty easy to work out who the good guys are and the bad guys are. I trust I'm allowed plot spoilers for the original Star Wars movies. If you haven't seen them, where have you been the last however many years? But anyway, the bad guys, they tend to be wearing the, the masks, the scary-looking masks. They're the bad guys. And you've got the bad guys and you've got the good guys, and everybody knows who's who. And often movies work like that. You've got simple categories, bad guys, good guys. Problem is, we're tempted to take that approach into normal life and to paint in black and white and ignore the shades of grey, to oversimplify and to categorise people as, well, depending on where you stand on Brexit, the COVID restrictions, there are the bad people and everything they do is bad. And then there are the good people who agree with me and everything they do is good. And so you end up with weird things like this this week. So Liz Truss is very unpopular with a certain um, certain segment of the the Twitterati, and because of her stance on Brexit. And so even when she's in opposition against Sergey Lavrov, who uh, joked about and basically backed the that wicked poisoning and murder in, uh, in Salisbury a couple of years ago, well, we'll support Lavrov and and condemn. Liz Trust because she's bad. We disagree with her on that. And so everything she says must be bad. And so he must be a good guy because he's again, you think, what? We just end up in this weird world where we have declared you're bad, you're good, and there is no nuance. And if that's the view you have of the world, when you turn to the Bible, you're going to find it a very strange and unsettling book. Now, sometimes the Bible presents a very clear distinction between the good people and the bad people. And, and when we return to, to 1 Samuel in a couple of weeks, to 1 Samuel 11, you'll see there is, in, in that chapter, there's a very clear presentation. Look, in this instance, this guy is good and they are not. But more often, more often, it shows that life is messy and the lines, well, they're blurred, if we're honest. See, the Bible's a real-world book. It's the most real, the most true book of all. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we turn to the Bible, we find that sometimes the, quote, good guys do really bad things. And sometimes the people who we think are, uh, surely they're the bad people, they, they do really noble things. 
And sometimes it's, it's not obvious who the good guys and the bad guys are. It's very confusing. And we're just not sure. Should I be cheering or booing at this point? Well, welcome to 1 Samuel 9 to 10. And as confusing as it is for us to work out what is happening, it's enormously encouraging because it tells us that God is very adept at working in messy lives of real people who, oh, I try to do good things, but I often make really bad decisions. And sometimes I do things that just are wrong and cause harm to others. And But God is able to work in and through people like you and me, real world people. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can perform life-saving surgery using a blunt, soiled scalpel. And we'll see there's enormous encouragement for you and me in these chapters. God is able to work through people like you and me. So, uh, just if you're joining us, we're in the year about 1030 BC. The Israelites left Egypt around 420 years before this and then entered the promised land 40 years after that. And God promised before they left the promised land, while they were in Egypt, God promised that at one point in the future, he would raise up a king to rule his people. Problem is, they're not willing to wait for God to fulfill his promise, as we saw last time. Worse still, it's not like they're an impatient child at Christmas. You can't wait for the present under the tree. They're like the child says, I don't think that what you've got me is going to be any good. I want his present. He's saying, God, we don't want the king you've chosen. We don't want to wait for you to choose as a king. We want a king just like the other nations have. We want one of those sorts of kings. Stuff waiting for your present. We want one of those, please. Except there's no pleas from God's people. They don't want to rely on God. They want a king instead of God. That was what we saw in the last couple of chapters. And so God declared at the end of 1 Samuel 8, sorry, halfway through 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, they have rejected me as their king. But then in the, in the final words of chapter 8, the Lord answered, verse 22 of chapter 8, listen to them and give them a king. And now we'll learn what that king will be like. But as I said in the introduction, this is a very mixed chapter. And so we're going to look through it uh, Basically, we're going to apply the usual suspects way of looking at it. So we're going to run through it once from one perspective, looking at how positive everything we learn about Saul is. And then we're going to look through the passage again. Don't worry, we're not going to work through it verse by verse twice. It's long. Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, And see the negative. Firstly, the positive, then the negative. So firstly, the Lord chooses a king for Israel. Four things on the point uh, on the sheet really that show Saul is God's man. He is raised and appointed by God. This is God's king for God's people. Firstly, God leads Saul on a wild donkey chase all the way to Samuel. Now, chapter 9 is a pretty strange story as it was read. And put yourself in Saul's sandals. One day, you wake up and the donkeys are gone. Now, probably wouldn't bother many of us too much if you woke up and your housemate said, the donkeys have gone. But if you're an ancient farmer, that's the equivalent of your tractors. This is, IT is down. Oh, actually, these days, we're all stuffed. This is, okay, we can't do any work without this. And so off Paul, Saul strudges on this search in the wild hill country of Ephraim. And it's a fruitless search, day after day of wandering and asking and hunting. 
until they've been gone so long that he realizes, uh, chapter 9, verse 5, we better go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. They've burned through all this time and almost all their money and they've not got a single donkey to show for it. But behind the scenes, God is at work. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people. God is at work to ensure that at just the right moment, Saul ends up in just the right place to be anointed by Samuel the prophet. I mean, think of all the coincidences that God engineers. The donkeys just happen not to be shut in properly, and so they wander off. Saul and his servant just happen to wander into the area of Zuf, verse 5, Samuel's home region. Then the servant just happens to have heard that there is a man of God who lives there. And he just happens to find, as he digs in his bag, there is one tiny quarter of a shekel left, so they can pay for the prophet's services. And Samuel just happens not to be traveling around Israel, judging, as we learned he did, but is there. And they just happen to meet this group of women who know exactly where Samuel is so that they can reach him before he leaves, verses 12 to 13. The whole story teaches us God is at work engineering all these circumstances to bring Saul to Samuel to be anointed king. Now, just as an aside, this, the story is about the, God's anointing his king. But as an aside, I hope there's encouragement because we all know frustration like Saul here. Days that feel like a, a wild donkey chase. Maybe it's days just feel lost, self-isolating. Weeks that feel lost through sickness, illness. Years lost working for a company that goes bust or building a relationship that blows apart. And at times it can feel like I've wasted chunks of my life on just a wild donkey chase. And I have nothing to show for it. And at times like that, it's worth remembering 1 Samuel 9. God is at work. Even when you can't see what possible good he could work from this particular thing, God is at work. There's no such thing as a wasted day if you're a follower of the good, generous God. You know, life for us is like the, uh, the backside of a tapestry, just a, a complete mess of tangled threads that has no order or, or rhythm or rhyme at all. But on the other side, God is weaving his perfect purposes to bless. And here, his purpose is to provide a king for his people. So God leads Saul on this wild donkey chase. Secondly, God's word establishes Saul. His, in chapter 10, God is still in charge, but he shows his, his power in a different way. His prophetic word drives the action. So um, Saul has joined Samuel for the feast halfway through chapter 9. And he spent the night at the prophet's house afterwards. He was staying on the roof. That's not rude. The roof wasn't sloped like a British roof. Um, it was a flat roof. And in the hot months, that's the nicest place to sleep. But then first thing the next morning, Samuel brings up a jar of olive oil with Saul's coffee. We dive in chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord 
anointed you ruler over his inheritance. And then having anointed him, he declares three very specific things that are going to happen. And this isn't like uh, the, the vague nonsense you read in the horoscopes in, the, in Metro. You know, an opportunity may appear, which doesn't sound promising, but could be worth taking. Now, what does that mean? I open the fridge and the food's passed the use-by. Doesn't look promising. I'm just Oh, the train, but it's to the wrong destination. Doesn't look... I mean, what's just, what on earth does it mean? <laughs> now, these... I mean, look at the reading. These are really specific things. Uh, you will, you'll meet two men at a particular place, Rachel's tomb, and they will say a particular set of words to you about the very donkeys you're looking for. Uh, then you'll go to the great tree. Three men were going to worship Bethel will greet you. One will be carrying three goats and then three loaves of bread. And they'll greet you and offer you bread to accept. Now, these are really specific things. And each one of them takes place exactly as God has said. God's word is fulfilled. In other words, while God's hidden hand brings Saul to Samuel, God's spoken word drives Saul out as king. You've been anointed, now I'm going to confirm that this is God's will. God's word confirms your kingship. Thirdly, God's spirit empowers Saul. So the olive oil being poured on him... The reason it was done in the Old Testament is it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit being poured on the king to give him the power, the wisdom, the strength he needs if he's going to lead God's people. If he's going to, as 9.16 puts it, help deliver them from the Philistines. And this is what happens. So um, dive in at 10 verse 6. The spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with this group of prophets and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, and who is their father? And so it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Um, it was reported a couple of weeks ago that lots of previously well-known phrases have fallen out of the English language. Did you read this? So very few of you nail your colours to the mast anymore, uh, or spend a penny and most of you are too young to be feeling like you're ready for the knacker's yard, but you wouldn't know what it was if you were. Well, apparently there's this point in Israel's history where there's a well-known phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, which means, um, well, it's clear. What it means here is, how on earth do you explain the change to this man? We, we know what he's like, so how do you explain what he's like now? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on here. So how do you explain the change in the man? The Holy Spirit, that's how you explain it. The donkey chaser from Benjamin has become a man who is a prophet of God. It's because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So I think actually we should recover this phrase for use in church. This is my uh, application point number one. Recover the use of the phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? 
Because when someone puts their trust in Jesus, this is a serious point, stop giggling. When, when someone puts their trust in Jesus, they receive new life through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So when you see someone who you knew used to be really greedy, becoming generous. When you see someone who used to be utterly career obsessed, just defined themselves by their career progress, giving up their job to to try gospel ministry. When you see someone who used to be me, my rights, um, my interests, my needs, me, 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 become just filled with love for other people. You ought to ask, is Saul also among the prophets? And the answer should come back. It's the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And so I would like to hear us use that phrase much more in church um, because we ought to be seeing people change. And as we do, when you see someone who's changed, just say, is Saul also among the prophets? And anybody who knows anything about the Bible will reply, yes, he is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, fourthly, God's choosing endorses Saul. I'm serious about that, by the way. Um, finally, God endorses Saul before all the people. So the, the, the passage ends with uh, Israel or perhaps the family heads gathered at Mizpah and lots are drawn and gradually the focus narrows in. Of the 12 tribes, Benjamin is chosen. Of the clans of Benjamin, Matri is chosen. Of the clans of Matri, the family of Kish is chosen until Saul's name emerges. All of the people have gathered before Samuel, and have seen, have witnessed, God exercise his choice. Saul is God's king. And you see that. That's what these chapters teach. You see God's providential hand guides Saul to the throne. God's prophetic word confirm that Saul is to be the king. God's Holy Spirit comes upon Saul to transform and empower him. And God's choice is made clear for all the people as the lots are drawn and Saul is chosen. Hannah sang in her song at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the song that drives the narrative. She sang about God raising the humble to the throne and this unwitting farmer's son from Benjamin is the fulfillment of that. But while that is the truth, it is not the whole truth. Because there are other details woven throughout this narrative that make us see a very different perspective. That, well, maybe it's more true to say that Saul is the king the people have asked for rather than the king God has chosen. They were sinful in requesting a king and they're getting what they've asked for. So firstly, as Saul is the king asked for by the people. Now, um, the chapter begins actually in a very, very unpromising way. If we look at the next slide. Um, So chapter 9 begins, there was a Benjamite. There was a Benjamite. Now, in Genesis 49.6, God declares through Jacob that the kings of his people will come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet. And so when 8.22 ends with God saying, give them a king... We are not expecting chapter 9 to begin, there was a Benjamite. And things don't improve, actually, in verse 2, when we read that Saul was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel and was a head taller than anyone else. Nothing against tall people. 
But the point is, in the previous chapters, in chapter 8, they'd said, we don't want God. We want a king to lead us and protect us in our battles. And suddenly you hear about someone who looks very like exactly the sort of person they're asking for, the biggest person in Israel, just the sort of person to lead us against the Philistines. Saul is the kind of king you get when you ignore God and instead get what you ask for. In fact, Saul's very name means asked, literally. His name in Hebrew is asked. He is the king the people asked for. And then do you notice what was not said about, this, about Saul? What is the word that neither God nor Samuel uses as they speak about Saul throughout the whole chapters? As God speaks to Samuel in chapter 9, 16 to 17, what does he say? 9, 16 and 17, he says, about this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, verse 17, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. 10.1, Samuel calls him ruler. Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? It's not till the very end of chapter 10 that anybody uses the word king to Saul. And it's not God. And it's not Samuel who say it. Chapter 10 Verse 24, then the people shouted, long live the king. Throughout the narrative, there are subtle hints that this is the king the people have asked for, not the king God intends to give. And increasingly, they will suffer because they've got what they asked for rather than what God wanted them to have. Secondly, um, Saul takes no initiative. It's notable, actually, how passive Saul is throughout. In chapter 9, it's his servant who suggests they go see God, uh, God's um, prophet. And it's his servant who solves the problem of the no money. And then in chapter 10, Samuel tells Saul these words, chapter 10, verse 5. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourine, pipes being played, The spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. Now, in the book of Judges, again and again, when you read the phrase, the spirit of the Lord coming powerfully upon someone, it's upon Samson to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Each time the Spirit comes powerfully upon someone, it's to go out and to fight against the evil occupying army, the Philistines. And so here you have Saul, God's anointed king, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're told right next to a Philistine outpost, do whatever your hand finds to do. And the mighty man of God goes home to feed the donkeys. He takes no initiative doesn't seem right. Uh, he, thirdly, he hides from God's calling. Saul is a, he's anointed with oil by Samuel and with the Holy Spirit by Almighty God. And yet, and yet, in verse 15 of chapter 10, Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us the donkeys have been found. 
but he didn't tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. It's like you, you bump into a childhood friend at a coffee shop when a, a royal car draws up outside and men in liveried coats get out and the security detail usher you into the car and you're taken to Buckingham Palace where Her Majesty the Queen says, I'm a little bit miffed with Charles and Camilla giving me COVID, allegedly, and so I've decided Charles is not going to be king anymore. You are going to be king or queen of the United Kingdom after I die. That's very nice. And then you go home and your housemate says, um, how are you doing? You say, you will never, ever guess who I met today. Really? Who? Only my best friend from year six in school. Can you believe it? Uh, you're not going to mention meeting the queen? It's just, it's just strange. It's as if Saul is deliberately concealing what's happened. And the passage, of course, ends with the faintly ridiculous scene as um, his tribe, his clan, his family are selected by lots. And finally, Saul himself is chosen and the tallest man in Israel is trying to hide himself in the baggage rather than accept God's call on his life. And then finally, uh, Saul's selection has very ominous echoes. There is something going on at Mizpah that should make us deeply uneasy about Saul. Uh, Look at verse 17, chapter 20. Saul summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all the disasters and calamities. And you said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. The last time anything like this happened in Israel's history is recorded in Joshua chapter 7. They just entered the promised land and suffered a terrible military defeat. And God has told Joshua it's because the people have sinned. And so the whole people are gathered. And under God, Joshua chooses a tribe and then a clan and then a family until Achan is identified as the man whose wicked sin has brought disaster on the people. And so when Samuel begins the gathering by denouncing the sin of Israel and then says, now step forward and be selected, tribe, clan, family, man. You're not sure whether there's going to be an enthronement or an execution at the end of this. It casts a very ominous shadow when you realize the only other time this happened was a very dark episode. And when Samuel doesn't talk about kingship, he just talks about sin. Well, it doesn't talk positive about kingship, but just talks about sin. It's like, and I've done a number of weddings at CCM. I've loved them all. And the, uh, but I'll tell you something that's never happened. I've never had a bride walk up the aisle to the Jaws theme. You think, yeah, that would be odd. I mean, that's just a bit ominous. You think, whoa, uh, something's not right here. And that's, that's what should be going on in our heads. We're thinking, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. This, this, isn't, this isn't 
how it should feel when a king is enthroned. This is, ooh, this is Achan. This is sin being exposed. These chapters, they're mixed. They're muddied and ambiguous. Saul is the king from the wrong tribe, demanded by the people. And yet, God clearly selects and empowers him with his spirit. Well, you probably guessed if you've been around the church for much time at all, that I'd say this at some point, but the text points ultimately to Jesus, as does all the Bible. He is the true king of God's people. Not a king chosen in the place of God, but God come as king for his people. Born in the line of Judah, chosen by God the Father, anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The king who doesn't shirk his responsibilities, but willingly comes and saves his people, laying down even his life to protect us from our enemies. Now, there will always be things that aren't right or ideal about every human leader, church leaders too, but Jesus is the perfect king. You can never have too high a view of Jesus. There is never an ambiguous sense to Jesus. You can put your trust wholly in him, confident he will never let you down. And everything we learn about kings in 1 Samuel should cast light on how glorious Jesus is. A king we can feel nothing but positive joy about. Okay, so trust him, follow him, love him, serve him. But the question is we close, who are you and I in this passage? It's always tempting to see ourselves as Saul or Samuel. You know, we always read ourselves into the central figures. But in truth, I think most of us are more like the people. Most of us would, if we acknowledge it honestly, say we often make bad choices in life out of a failure to trust God. And we're left worried. Well, can God use me? Can God accept, be involved with me? But wonderfully, the Holy Spirit tells us through 1 Samuel 9 and 10 that God is still at work. In spite of the fact that his his people reject him and and ask for Paul, and in spite of the fact they've traded God for a man and a fallen man at that, in spite of that, in his grace, God pours his spirit on Saul and uses Saul to save them. How very gracious of him. And he is the same God for you and for me. Now, it's not an excuse to just shrug our shoulders and carry on with things we know to be sinful. Whenever we sin, we suffer because sin is always an act of self-harm. Always. And there are usually real-world consequences for us when we do sin. God set up the world so that we'd flourish when we obey him. But there is free forgiveness in Christ. Our true king has paid for every sin. So we do not need to fear God's judgment. And perhaps more amazingly to many of us, God still works out his purposes to bless us and make us a blessing to others, even in spite of the sinful choices we've made in life. So don't despair that all is lost. It's easy to think that some of the decisions, some of the things we've done in the past have ruined everything. And to feel God just can't have any real purposes for me now. 
turn back to Christ. Those things were never a surprise to him. When he set out to save you before time began, he knew how you and I would fail him. And he is able to work in us and through us, even after we've made decisions that we now know were disastrous and have had life-changing consequences. See, God is revealed. The wonderful thing I think about these Old Testament stories with all their twists and mess is that God is revealed as more gracious, more loving, and more imaginative than any of us have realized. Yes, imaginative. Who on earth could have imagined that God would use the obscenely wicked rejection and murder of his son to be salvation for the world? You may not be able to imagine how God could be involved to redeem some of the things that have happened to you that you've done. But God is more gracious. God is more imaginative than you can possibly imagine. His power to redeem by grace is mightier than our power to ruin by sin. So yes, life is complicated. We're complicated. Things are messy. Come to Christ and come confident that God works in the mess to bring about his good purposes.